This episode of Hearsay is sponsored by the Wheels of Justice, a partnership against cancer, benefiting the Children's Colorado Center for Cancer and Blood Disorders. For more information, visit wheelsofjusticecycling.org. 1981 marked the start of a lawsuit in Colorado that today is still ongoing. It's one that long predates the legal careers of both sides' current lead counsel. In 37 years, the case has amassed a paper record of tens of thousands of pages. Soon after Court of Appeals arguments in September for the case's fourth appeal, I sat down with the current lead attorneys on each side to find out what it's like to manage a case file that huge. This is Hearsay from Law Week, Colorado. I'm Julia Cardi. Uh, this is page 20,015 of the record. If you look at 20,017, there's another, there's a color version of this map, which is the original. I entered my appearance in the case in August of 2004. And while I had a suspicion that we'd be back on appeal one day, I had no idea that it would take 14 years to get here. Oddly enough, the thing about dealing with this huge document case reinforced for me the need for interacting with people on a regular basis. What might be the state's longest-running lawsuit concerns access rights to two parcels of land that make up more than 77,000 acres in the San Luis Valley. The parcels together are now known as Cielo Vista Ranch, formerly called Taylor Ranch after previous owner Jack Taylor. The plaintiffs, residents of Costilla County, claim they have access rights to the ranch land for timber collection and livestock grazing. They have traced their rights to a document from 1863 that promised settlers access to a million-acre land grant in the region. The Colorado Supreme Court ruled in the residents' favor in a pair of decisions in 2002 and 2003. But on November 15th, the Court of Appeals released a decision in the latest appeal. The ranch's owner challenged the process the district court used from 2004 to 2010 to allocate land rights to Castilla County residents. The process has relied on property records from 1894 to connect ancestral rights to current landowner rights. But even the latest opinion hasn't put an end to the case. The Court of Appeals affirmed the process used from 2004 to 2010. But the court decided the process used by the district court from 2010 to 2016 to award land access rights wasn't comprehensive. During that period, Costilla County residents who hadn't already been granted access rights had to actively claim them. So now, it's back to the district court again. Aaron Boucher is lead counsel for the plaintiffs, Costilla County's residents. He's a senior associate at Squire Patton Boggs and began work on the case in 2010. He took over as lead counsel in 2013. So at one point during the oral arguments in front of the Court of Appeals early in September, I heard you make mention to page 20,015 of the record. So what's your estimation as to how big this, this record is? Well, that, that particular page, 20,015, is actually probably one of my greatest contributions to the case. Uh, the, the record goes on from there for another several thousand pages. But that's just the court filings. In addition to that, there's all the transcripts of the hearings and status conferences that have gone on throughout the years, which also is in the tens of thousands of pages, as well as exhibits. 
um, which were introduced at the various stages of the litigation, um, which were in the hundreds. And then there's the case files, uh, the plaintiff's case files that have accumulated over the years, which is over 200 bankers' boxes. So um, I'm not good at math in my head, but that's an awful lot of documents. Um, and a lot, awful lot of very interesting documents, but also a lot of just copies of court filings, copies of depositions, and things like that. I decided to estimate the math. A banker-style box can fit as many as 5,000 pages. Boshe said not all of them are full, but that could still mean hundreds of thousands of pages of case files and copies. You mentioned page 20,015 is one of your greatest contributions to the case. Tell me more about that. Well, um, without getting into too much detail, um, <clears throat> page 20,015 of the record is a map uh, that was created by Edmund Van Deest, who was a prolific cartographer in southern Colorado in the 1800s. And we, I found that map and we stipulated with the other side that certain areas on that map were entitled to the easement rights that are at issue in the case. And so that really kind of concluded a big question mark in the case, which, you know, the, the remand from the Colorado Supreme Court was, you know, identify this land and enter the orders to safeguard their rights. And so by entering into that stipulation, we essentially all agreed what that land was, which was a big open issue on the remand process. Um, so it really moved us f really far down the field in kind of getting final resolution on the case. Spencer Fain partner Ron Fano joined the case as co-counsel for the ranch's owner in 2004. He's been lead counsel for several years. Fano joined the case as junior co-counsel. The ranch was changing ownership at the time. The new owner wanted to bring on one of Fano's partners, Dick Herring, as lead counsel. But given how long the case had gone on even then, there was a possible complication. Um, and the only concern that they had was Dick's age, which was probably in the, his mid-60s at the time. And so they asked Dick, uh, in light of the fact that the case might uh, potentially outlast him uh, in his career, if he could get somebody younger involved. And, and to me, I was younger at the time. And um, that's, uh, so Dick asked me to be involved in the case from day one, so he and I tried it uh, as co-counsel with him being more lead counsel. Um, but uh, as fate would have it, Dick did retire before the case was over as it's still going on now. Fano explained how tens of thousands of pages in the record divide up among its different parts. It comprises scores of filings, exhibits, and transcripts. Most of the exhibits in the case are included in those 21,000 21, pages. But just for um, summary judgment purposes back in 1981, the uh, plaintiffs in the case had uh, 5,500 roughly pages of exhibits that were part of the record. And then the Taylor family, they, they only had 640 pages of exhibits uh, to a motion for summary judgment. So 
and then the transcripts, I don't know that we have pages, a number of pages in the transcripts. If I can pull those up. But the transcripts, like I said, run from, uh, from the first hearing uh, that, uh, the, from June of 2004, um, all the way up to, I think, should be one for October of 2016 or September of 2016 was the last one. And the thing about those tens of thousands of pages of court filings they're in one continuous PDF, and they're not all in order, as Boucher explained. Yeah, as you get, <clears throat> as you go back in time closer to the, the beginning of the case, the records are, you know, you'll see, like the very first page of the tr record is an exhibit to the complaint. So it's, that's, it starts with exhibit A, and so you kind of have to go through and figure out what it's exhibit A to. But one of the difficulties was matching up pages together if they were out of order because you couldn't reorder them in the PDF because the way that they're designated in the record is which page of the PDF they are. And so you can't alter your, your copy of the record because the Court of Appeals has its own version and, and you know, the pagination has to remain consistent. So you know, to the extent we, were mat we had to kind of reorder pages, we just essentially had to cite it that way in our briefing. You know, the, you know, this document is pages 61 through 71 and 1 through 11, you know, and, and kind of just direct uh, our references to the record in that way. But the case file wasn't digitized until 2009, so Fano remembers physically carrying around parts of it anytime they had a hearing. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was difficult but I think more difficult in hindsight than it was practically speaking because in the period from 2004 to 2009, I don't think the world was as digitized as it is now and has become since then. So there was a practice in, in being a lawyer that there was more paper that was carried around. It may be hard for Boucher and Fano to imagine their legal careers without this case. But in 1981, when the litigation began, Boucher was in first grade. Fano was in eighth grade. He had an inkling he wanted to be a lawyer, but the ranch was nowhere on his radar. For both of them, litigating the case effectively meant learning a lot of history that predated their roles. And perhaps ironically, that involved stepping out of the bubble created by the huge trove of documents. How did you approach learning about history of the case that predates your role, but that was relevant for you? For that, I really kind of went to the basics and just investigated as if, you know, it, it was certainly made more difficult by virtue of the fact that what I was investigating had happened 30, in some instances, 40 years before. Um, but, you know, I bought a lot of people, a lot of lunches. Um, I sat down with former attorneys on the case, a lot of the, uh, obviously the clients, um, just people in the community. And in a typical case, that might require, you know, talking to six or a dozen people. In this case, it meant talking to like a hundred. And depending on who you're talking to, the focal points are going to be different. And if you kind of draw a matrix based off of that, 
you, you can kind of fill in a, a holistic picture of what occurred. Um, and then at that point, to get more granular information, you know, I actually went through the 200 boxes of documents uh, and indexed them all uh, with help from some law students and a retired judge. Um, but, you know, that kind of, there's really no substitute for that kind of go through every single page, every single map, all the interviews, everything that's gone on in the case so that you can really build in the depth from, you know, the points that you can get from interviews and things like that and so that you can see how deep the bench goes. Um, you know, if, if all I did was sit down with the record cold, even though I'd already been working on the case for, you know, several years, if I had just sat down with the record and started going through it and trying to figure it out without the context of all those conversations and interviews and input, it would have been a lot harder and I probably would have missed some things that ended up being crucial in the case. Um, so I, I guess it's the, it's the human interaction, I think. Oddly enough, the thing about dealing with this huge document case reinforced for me the need for interacting with people on a regular basis. I'm Julia Carty for Hearsay.